I've never met you, Ravis. How are you doing? Pretty good. I've seen your photo, though, because Joe shows a photo of both of you at some wedding, I guess, from a year ago <laughs> to everyone. <laughs> I do. Yeah, I like that picture. And then Joe proceeds to say that how she had to force you to come to that wedding. <laughs> I hope it wasn't one of my kids' weddings. <laughs> Hi, Deval. Hi, Radhika. How are you doing today? Who is on the episode today? Joe and Ravi, two amazing, dynamic, wise social entrepreneurs and NGO leaders that we've had the benefit to know for about a decade. They run phenomenal organizations in Dehradun, focusing on children with special needs, as well as supporting communities across the region to protect the diversity that they've always protected for generations, but giving them the tools and the frameworks, enabling them to do that more effectively. So Ravi Chopra is the founder of the People Science Institute, and Joe is the founder of the Latika Roy Foundation. Exactly. Ravi and Joe, thank you so much for participating in today's podcast. I'm so, so excited to speak to you both. Joe, I've had the privilege of knowing you for many years, but Ravi, I've read about the work you've done. And I think just both of you are just amazing role models for me and for Dasra. I think it's exciting to also have a husband and wife on the podcast. I mean, Nira and I are a husband and wife team. So I think it's always nice to hear about those journeys too. Well, with that really... It, I'm going to turn it over to both of you to speak a little bit about your backgrounds, what you do, and what inspired you to get into this space to begin with. Well, Deval, as you can tell from my looks, I am one of India's midnight children, born around the time of independence. And the 1950s were a time of great excitement, hope, and activity. And there were all kinds of dreams and plans of what this country was going to be like. We looked up to the leaders of the independence struggle. In 1962, I think, I attended a public lecture given by Rajmohan Gandhi, at that time a very young person. And he talked about the role of young people in building a new India. And that inspired me a lot. So I came home and I told my parents, I said, I'm not going to study beyond this. I'm going to go and do some nation building. And my parents, I think I got one slap for that. And I was told to go and pay attention to my studies. And after you finish your studies, you can think about nation building. And there were these two social scientists in the U.S., the Paddock brothers, who published a book called Triage. And one of their messages was that there's no point in giving food aid to India because by the mid-70s, people will be dying like flies on the streets of Indian cities. And India is a basket case. Let's forget about it. Growing up with all those dreams of the 1950s, this came as a big shock. And that was the time when some of us decided that, forget about regular careers, I had been studying at IIT at that time, IIT Bombay, and we thought, let's do something for the country. So after that, 
even though I did go ahead and get a PhD in the subject of engineering, I knew that I was not going to have a regular professional career. But one thing led to another. I spent some time at the Center for Science and Environment, which Anil Agarwal had set up. And a few years later, I felt that I have to do something more practical than write articles. And that was the beginning of the People's Science Institute. I retired from the Institute in 2017. And currently, my one big passion, a small organization called the Uttarakhand Insaniyat Manch, where we are trying to promote social harmony based on our constitutional values in our city. Thank you so much for sharing it. I still remember when I told my parents that I was going to move from the U.S. to India. I also got a slap <laughs> like you did. <laughs> so I think we all have similar stories of that. At least as first generation immigrants in America, it was very clear the reason they left. One of the reasons they left India and to go to the U.S. was for economic empowerment. And then sort of having their children questioning that economic empowerment and saying, I want to do something else is something that definitely uh, you know hit them by surprise. Joe, what about your story? Yeah, well, I come from a family of Catholic activists in the United States. And my parents were very proud of me. They, I not, didn't get any slaps. They were very sad at the idea of my moving to India, and they were worried about my marrying a Hindu. But they did feel that this is how they had brought me up. And they themselves had been involved in social action. And my mother ran a house of hospitality, as they called it, where she and her sister took in homeless people and uh, took care of them basically for years on end. And I grew up that way. My parents had always had other people living in our house, people who were down on their luck. Or I remember one of our favorite stories was when an elderly neighbor's house burned down and he was standing on the street and when they put out the fire, the firefighters asked him, so Mr. Law, where should we take you? And he said, I don't know. I have nowhere to go. And some neighbor said, take them to the McGowans. They take everybody. And that really was the way my parents brought us up. And so I think for them, it was a disappointment because we loved each other a lot and they didn't want to see me move so far away, but they were happy about it. So I met Ravi in 1976 and I was on a walk from it was a padiatra from Boston to Washington for disarmament and social justice. And Ravi was on a walk from Philadelphia to New York for democracy in India. And we literally collided in Trenton, New Jersey. And we just exchanged addresses. We told some stories to each other. I walked with his walk for a while and then went on with my walk. He went on with his. And two years later, I was at another demonstration in New York. I was arrested outside of the UN. And when I got out of the jail, there was a reporter from the New York Times and he wanted to interview a woman. So he interviewed me and Ravi saw that interview in the New York Times and he reconnected with me. We fell in love through the post and we met again in September of 1978 and we got married just a short while after that and came to India in 81. 
And um, Ravi knew exactly what he wanted to do. I had no idea what I wanted to do. And I had no idea how I was going to survive in this country. It was everything was strange to me. It was so difficult. I was so young, so unsophisticated. I had never traveled outside of the U.S., didn't speak the language. I was really lost for a long time. And it wasn't until uh, 1989 when we, by then we had moved to Dehradun. One of the things I told Ravi was that since he had chosen the country, I was going to choose the city. And it wasn't going to be Mumbai, which is where he grew up. So we ended up in Dehradun for a number of reasons. And uh, by then, we had adopted a little girl. We had two homemade kids, and we adopted Moi Moi. And as Moi Moi's development became, it became clear to us that she had disabilities, I started thinking about starting something for her. And then I started the Letika Roy Foundation in 1994, a school for Moi Moi was really all I had in mind at the beginning. And I meant it to be small. I didn't mean to do anything dramatic. I had no long-term plan. I had no scaling ideas, none of that. All I wanted was a school for my daughter. But one thing just led to another because there were so few opportunities for disabled children. And as soon as we opened our doors, we started being besieged by families that were looking for something for their own kids. And we soon had a waiting list. We just had to keep expanding. So now the Letika Roy Foundation is almost 30 years old. We are a team of about 120. We have hundreds of children that we see every day. We do outreach into small villages and towns. We provide direct services to hundreds of kids every day. And we also do a lot of work in the community, advocacy, awareness raising, training, networking. It's really everything. And we work with kids from birth to adulthood and try and provide everything we can think of that disabled people might need. That's amazing. And I think just even thinking about your own life story, and again, we've spoken about this, Joe, in the past. When when I was growing up, at least, I my mom babysat for a lot of parents, single parents who had children with special needs. And some of the children stayed at our house while their parents worked. Others who were hooked up, you know, different machines, they were unable to even come to our house. That was the exposure that I saw, at least growing up. And the work that you do at Letica Roy Foundation really hits home in terms of what I saw in my own experiences. And I guess when we even did a report on disability where we featured the work that you all do, Umid, and so many others across the country, we realized that lived experiences is at times one of the main factors of why, for example, people fund disability. They have somebody in their family or a relative or they've seen somebody with a disability and that's why they sort of look out, you know, sort of focusing on this area. Whereas Ravi, when you think about starting PSI, again, from Mumbai, from IIT, what what sort of what were, I guess, the experiences that had you sort of set up this organization, that too, in an area and perhaps even a community that you had not necessarily seen growing up, but you realized there was a need to sort of support them? When I decided that it was time to come home, we were staying with a friend of mine in New Jersey, and he was my roommate at IIT. One night he says to me, if you are going to go back home, then what am I going to do over here? I said, you also come. And he said, what will I do over there? I said, they, tu to bada saab hai. 
and you are used to handling big budgets. So we are going to have to set up something big that you will be happy handling. And that was the germ of the idea of People Science Institute, setting up a center of excellence where science and engineering can be put at the service of people who cannot walk into the doors of government institutions. And once we, before we started People Science Institute, we did give it a lot of thought. I returned to India. I talked about People Science Institute to a number of friends. And the question would come up, do you have a cheese hogi? I said, Haan, cheese to badi hogi. And they would say, how big? Now I'm talking of the early 80s. And I said, well, it will require some resources of the order of few crores. And they would immediately be turned off thinking that here's this megalomaniac just returned from the U.S. But I must mention that once uh, the Bhopal gas tragedy happened, many of the people that I had conversed with earlier about setting up People Science Institute came back and said, yes, there is a very big need for a People Science Institute. Dunu and I spent about a year drafting a perspective plan for People Science Institute, and bit by bit, we began to implement it. Formally, we got established in 1988, and uh, there were a few program areas. I was more confident of uh, being able to do something in the area of water resources. Dunu was more confident of working with on labor issues, so he took up issues of labor and I took up issues of the environment. But later, when Dunu realized that he couldn't move to Dehradun, then uh, we decided that PSI would focus on the issue of water, natural resource management for livelihoods, and later, as we had to cope with disasters in Uttarakhand, we added the area of disaster mitigation and response, and it kept on developing in that manner. So today, the active areas of PSI are natural resources management for rural livelihoods, environmental quality monitoring, disaster mitigation and response, and river conservation. These are the areas where we have been active for almost more than two decades. And then as we look ahead, we are seeing that there is a very rapid urbanization that is taking place. So urban issues are now entering our thinking. We are focusing on climate change issues. And hopefully, we'll get a sense of direction of what we are going to do in these areas in the next decade or so. It's interesting because at least now everyone is speaking about climate change and climate justice and what is required. In 1980s, I'm assuming the conversation was very different. And also maybe even now, again, for our listeners, if you could help them understand why and what role, I guess, does science play with the communities that you serve, as well as then how does science play a role in their development? Because many times 
at least in the West, uh, scientist and sort of development do not go hand in hand. I had a bunch of young kids straight out of college joining me as colleagues. And I said to them, I said, we are going to work in the area of water resources. And therefore, what we'll do is the biggest use for water in our country is for irrigation. So let us study the history of irrigation development in India. But after a couple of years, my colleagues said to me, we've been going around writing these reports and producing uh, literature. We don't even know if anybody's reading them. We'd like to do something more practical. Just about that time, there was an earthquake in Uttarakhand. As you know, Uttarakhand is part of India's Himalayan region. And we have a couple of big faults, major faults here. The entire state is earthquake prone. So when the earthquake took place, we went to the earthquake, the area in the around the epicenter, and just to observe, see what was going on. By the time we returned to Dehradun, there were a few villagers waiting for us who said, we'd like you to help us build earthquake-safe houses. And we said, oh, we don't build houses. We know a little bit about water resources. They said, you are engineers, right? She said, yes, we are engineers. Then you have to help us build houses. So fortunately, one of our directors was a geotechnical engineer. He's a civil engineer trained in construction work. He said, I'll guide you in building earthquake-safe houses. And that's when we took another tour of the affected area and we saw that there were some old structures in Uttarakhand which were four or five stories high, were over a hundred years old and had survived the earthquake. So we began to study why have these buildings survived. And once we tried to list the features, we found out that the science of seismology and seismic safe structures is reflected in all these features. So here was an example of a traditional earthquake safe construction practice, which was being validated by modern science also. Normally it's the other way around. You go with your modern science and you then try to validate the um, traditional science. For us, it worked the reverse way. So we got into earthquake safe housing in 1991. There was the Latour earthquake in 93. There was another earthquake in uh, Uttarakhand in 1999, the Kutch earthquake in 2001, the tsunami in 2004, I think. There was the Jammu Kashmir earthquake 2005. In all of them, we would go, we would find local organizations, we would study the area, we would prepare approaches on how to build earthquake-safe housing for that area. And we would publish information and literature in very simple terms. Uh, typically, it would be a page of pictures with a few lines of text so that 
people who are not well educated can easily understand the pictures. I love the fact that it's science on both ways. And many times, again, we forget that indigenous communities actually have earthquake-proof housing as well as protect biodiversity in ways that may not be documented for the IITs of the world or the technical institutes of the world. And I think, at least for our listeners, it's important for to remind them that where indigenous people comprise 5% of the world's population, they actually protect 80% of global biodiversity. And I think people just think that science comes from labs, not realizing that science can also come from the field. Joe, I'm going to go back to you. And, you know, with 26.4 million individuals in India who may have some level of disability, could you give us a sense of what else the Latika Roy Foundation does beyond the school? Because I think that'll just be helpful for listeners to understand, especially again, in the region that you're in, where perhaps not everyone can come to your school, but there's still other ways of you providing support to both children as well as families in need. Yeah, one of the things that we do, and we have to do this over and over again, is correct that number that you just led with of 26 million. It's actually more like 250 million disabled people in the country. And the 26 million comes from the census, which has been saying the same thing for as long as the question has been asked, which is only the last two censuses. But the number is wrong. And there are a lot of reasons for that. And I think part of it comes from the lack of understanding that there's nothing to be ashamed about disability, that you don't have to hide it, that the you're not a family that's done something wrong because you have a kid with a disability or somebody in your family has a disability. So the most important things that we do is talk about it and make it a matter of pride that, you know, like anybody else, these people are here and they have great things to contribute and they do contribute. And part of it is what they contribute in themselves and part of it is what they bring out in other people. And I think that's true for everybody. But we tend not to see it with disabled people and particularly disabled children who are seen as a terrible burden on a family. If you acquire a disability late in life and you know your family is suddenly forced to see all the potential that may no longer be realized because you've had an accident or you've had a terrible illness, then people see disability in a more holistic way. But when you're born with a disability, which are most of the children we work with, developmental disabilities come at birth, people see that as a tragedy. And we are trying to change that understanding through a better understanding of what disability is caused by what things are preventable, what things are not preventable. So we do a lot of education. We work with schools. We work with community groups. We work with the government and tell better stories about disability. One of the things that we've been doing for the last 26 years is putting out a calendar which portrays children with disability in a, um, a more beautiful light. Like we show them laughing and having fun and dancing and playing and doing all the things that other children do. And the idea of disabled kids being cute and not just tragic victims is new for a lot of people. And they often look at the pictures and they'll say, well, where are the disabled kids? I thought you worked with disabled kids. And we have to point out that these are disabled kids, you just maybe don't recognize them and that all disabilities are not visible. 
There are many disabilities that we all walk around with that are not recognized. And one of the things that we have been talking about for years, I think we first started saying this maybe 20, 25 years ago, was that when you plan for the most vulnerable, you make the world work better for everyone. And just a simple example, something as simple as ramps. You know, we think that those are being put into buildings so that wheelchairs can go in, but they work well for people who have wheeled suitcases. They work well for parents pushing kids in prams. They work well for vendors coming in with heavy equipment and they come in with wheeled trolleys. So you plan for that most vulnerable person who can't walk into the building and suddenly you make it work better for everyone. And the education system works like that. The medical system works like that transport, buildings, everywhere you go. When you think about the disabled people who are 15% of the population and plan for them without retrofitting and working backwards, you're going to make things work better in general. We also do a lot of work in recreation. And that's something that often gets missed out in disability. It tends to be vocational training or therapy or you know how you can catch kids up in the mainstream curriculum. And again, we forget that disabled kids are kids first. They're not disabled, they are kids. And so they need to play. That's how children learn. We have a club that is for disabled kids as well as typical kids. About 40% are disabled, 60% are typical, and they play and they learn and they grow together. And not only does everybody have fun, but the children grow up learning to appreciate each other and learn to recognize that everybody has challenges. And it's not just the visible disabilities that we're talking about. There are kids who are anxious. There are kids who are extremely, maybe painfully shy. There are kids who are dealing with gender dysmorphia. There are kids who are dealing with things going on at home. Children who are seeing domestic violence are children who are facing challenges. And all these things have to be talked about. They have to be dealt with if we're going to make a better world that works for the most vulnerable. So I think those kinds of things are part of a complete package that we're trying to provide for the children that we work with and their families, because every child comes from a family and we never work with children alone. We work with them and their parents and their aunts and uncles, their grandparents, their siblings, because it's everybody who's going to make this system work better for them. Um, We do a lot of vocational training. We help people get jobs. We help make sure that disabled people can vote. But in the process, we're always helping other people in the same way. Like when we did the Aadhaar card, providing it for our disabled kids because they really have a hard time cooperating with the machines and making their hands work. We found so many elderly people coming and saying, you know, I can't do it either. I went three times. They still haven't gotten my card made. And we were able to help them get their other cards. We do this for people who need jobs. It's not just the disabled kids that need them. It's their parents often need jobs and we help them find them. Because if the parents don't have jobs, how are the kids going to be fed? How are they going to go to school? So it's really a more holistic approach that we have arrived at, at the Latika Roy Foundation, because we believe in true inclusion. I appreciate you speaking about holistic care and looking at the problem from different lenses and perspectives. Some of our listeners may be wondering, 
from day one when you started the foundation and you started the school? Did you have all of this in your mind that you were going to do all of these things? Or how did you sort of make these strategic decisions on what to do, what not to do? And I guess, how have you sort of been able to manage all of this under the same umbrella? And has it been difficult and challenging? One of the things I admire the most about Ravi and the People Science Institute is how much they planned before they began. I did nothing like that. I muddled along. I had no idea what I was getting myself into. And we were so lucky that the right people just kept turning up at the right time to help us take the next step. It was a very organic process for us. And I had Ravi also helping me think about systems and putting processes in place and thinking about where the money was going to come from. I was very much, you know, God will provide sort. And it, well, it did work because here we are. But I think what I really like about Ravi's approach and what I see from a lot of the kids that I met through the DESRA training is much more of a clarity of purpose right from the beginning and things in perspective and a realistic understanding of how things work. I think there's good to be said on both sides, though. And I learned as I went and good people kept helping the foundation to grow and to develop. I appreciate you saying this, that there's no right way to start an organization. And I think there are different sort of levels of strategic planning that may happen before or even during. I think the critical aspect, which I'm sure is the similarity between Lethika Roy Foundation and People's Science Institute, is the fact that there's sort of there's consistent feedback mechanisms between the communities that you serve and that understanding of what's happening on the ground. And more importantly, I guess, the humility of any leader to say what we thought was the answer may not be the answer. I feel are maybe the critical pieces, regardless if you start with the strategic plan or not, that need to be in place to ensure that you continue to create that level of impact. And Joe, I guess as you look forward now, especially as we talk about this topic, what are some of the sort of aspirations of Lethika Roy Foundation? And, and what have individuals in your community, I guess, felt in the last few years? Because, I mean, if Zoom was difficult for, you know, for example, for my kids, just because they didn't have the interaction, they weren't in school, learning on a computer is extremely difficult versus being in, in person. If you can give us a sense of what this meant for the communities you served and how you were able to overcome it, as well as what are some of the setbacks that have been in place just given everything that's occurred in the last few years. Yeah, I think what we found on the plus side was tremendous resourcefulness from the families when they had to work with their kids at home. And they were getting advice and support from our team, mainly through um, regular phone calls. Most of them didn't even have smartphones at the beginning of the pandemic. And so we were giving them ideas on regular phone calls, but they were amazing in the things that they came up with to provide the sort of exercises and activities at home that we had been doing with their kids at the centers. So we had parents using water drums as therapy balls and pillars on their verandas as standing frames, and children were helped to stand up in a standing position, which was important for their therapy those rolling on the ball that they did to keep their muscles supple and flexible. 
they were able to do it using that water drum. And the importance of regular interaction with the kids and giving them a chance to express themselves and waiting patiently while they formed their thoughts and expressed them, that was all wonderful to see. But what we also saw was a tremendous sense of isolation and families that were living in tiny accommodations and having a child with autism who has regular behavior meltdowns and they needed those kids to get outside. They had to have some open air. They had to be able to run around to really to survive. And so we did see an increase in child abuse. We saw mothers who were just at their wits end, who were getting beaten up by their husbands or their in-laws. So we saw a lot of tragedy and um, and we tried as much as we possibly could to support them with our mental health teams. And we learned a lot in the process of the importance of mental health support so that now that's a um, fundamental feature of everything that we do is looking at mental health and doing things before crises arise. You know, we have a big team of counselors. We are doing a lot of community health, community mental health training. Uh, we work closely with Umid. We've sent so many of our people to Umid in Mumbai for their training so that we can provide the kind of mental health support that our families need. And the mothers in particular really appreciate this and they find a lot of community amongst themselves in the support groups that we've been able to set up and the sibling support groups, the grandparent support groups. So we really try and put a lot of emphasis on that. Ravi, I'm going to come back to you now a little bit on, I mean, you've been in this sector for so long. I mean, I thought I was in the sector for a while and it's been since 1999 for me at least, but for you, it's been much longer. What have been sort of some of the critical challenges that you see sort of have occurred especially in the last few years with COVID. When we first got going in the late 60s, there wasn't much of a reception from the kind of social circle we came from. Okay, For them, it was good enough to be a member of the Lions Club or the Rotary Club and do something as a side activity in your life not the main activity in your life. Getting started was a little bit difficult, especially because we tried to encourage other students like ourselves to get involved. And their parents, as you've realized yourself, parents were the biggest opponents of the kids getting involved in anything that we were suggesting. But the fortunately, the 70s was what I call the decade of innovation. It was a flowering of voluntary activity across the country. Up in the north, you had the emergence of the Chipko movement. You had Raligan Siddhi, Anna Azare going back to his village. You had Ila Ben quitting Majur Mahajan and starting Seva. They didn't have an office. They didn't have any structure behind them. They were just driven by their passion and they acted on it. So it throughout the 70s, it was a difficult time for voluntary activists making ends meet. And in the 80s, there was a recognition in the 80s that government can't do everything and individuals can't do much. So 
collectives of people and organizations can accomplish what an individual can't. And therefore, there was a lot of support and government programs, which led to a mushrooming of voluntary activism. So much money started to flow into the sector from the government that people began to think of voluntary work as a career. So it became a career in development. And as you know now, there are courses being offered by universities for people learning about development and trying to, hopefully trying to practice it. There were also problems of very quick growth. And in many places, money came in in large amounts. People didn't know how to handle it. And there was the constant push from the donors. You got to professionalize yourself. You got to professionalize yourself. There's an organization that I chaired for a while. And, you know, they have a budget that at that time was in the tens of crores and is probably now in around 100 crores or so. Several of these organizations. And we've got to wonder, when we started out, we always said, we are catalyst. We will show what is possible. And we hope the government will scale it up. But today, we are very often doing the work of government departments. The government departments, by and large, are dysfunctional. And they rely on voluntary organizations to get their work done. This, however, they resented, and this resentment was more felt at the official personal level. Officers would often tell me, he says, Tumhara kya hai? Tum ek mein, das mein kaam karke doge? Mujhe pura jila sambhalna hai. That's what a DM said to me. He said, I don't have the luxury to try out experiments in a couple of villages. And if they succeed, go to the press and get a lot of publicity. Since I have to implement a government program all across the district. And if I favor one part of the district over another, I have all the politicians baying for my blood. Okay. So this kind of, there was an antagonism between the government and the NGOs. And once the UPA came into existence, while they did appreciate a lot of the good work that the NGOs were doing, they also began to tighten controls. Now, many, 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 many small organizations in rural areas were dependent on these funds for survival. Now, many small uh, NGOs have gone out of existence. These were the NGOs that were started by people who came out of the villages they saw People like me coming to their village, they work and they said, why don't I do this kind of work in my neighborhood? And many of them are, do not exist today. Okay, so that's been a big change. Then the whole dependence on the corporate social responsibility. You know, this new rule that has come that if a corporate gives you CSR funds, you have to spend it by March 31st. Along with the corporate social responsibility also comes the corporate culture, okay? And the heavy emphasis on management, on compliances, on, on books of accounts. So we are running bureaucracies in our organizations. 
And that to me is a loss. Exactly to what you've said last week. In fact, on Friday, I was facilitating a panel with corporates and it was supposed to be just a conversation on CSR that I was supposed to moderate. And I kind of changed it to be a debate on should CSR, the way it's currently structured, exist or be banned? We all remember about 10, 15 years ago having an education cess that we all pay through our personal taxes. And if, for example, CSR is just going to be another cess over time, then let's call it a cess, let's create it, and then let's not really have CSR in the shape that it has sort of taken, given all of those restrictions, like you rightfully said, do not actually facilitate or foster impact, it is quite the opposite. I mean, on one hand, we have the government, rightfully so, talking about aspirational districts and areas that need support. On the other, there's a recommendation in CSR that says you should give in and around your factory areas. And there's nothing wrong with that. But typically where economic opportunity exists is where socioeconomic indicators are also pretty good. And and so I do think just having conversations around what are the sort of issues with the law is something that needs to happen. Joe, coming back to you, where do you see hope going forward in the work that you're doing? Like you said, even I you know, pulled off a website, 26 million, and that statistic itself is wrong. And it's more like 15% of the population. So given sort of where we're at, where do you see hope and what keeps you and your team going? We deal in small, small steps. And we see children who learn to talk or who are able to say something with their eyes or in sign language that their parents are so excited about. It changes everything. A child who has been unable to communicate and because of that frustration has had major behavior problems that cause so much grief for the whole family, learns to communicate it changes the whole dynamic in the family. And we see those incremental, tiny little steps. And I think that's what really makes the difference to us. We work so hard to make those things happen. And so they're real celebrations when they do. And, you know, they all add up. We see children who came to us at the early intervention level who seemed like they were never going to learn to walk or talk or feed themselves or take a bath themselves, and they're walking out of the vocational training center ready to get jobs, that's miraculous for us. And I think the team just lives for that kind of change. No, thank you, Joe. First of all, I think you're much nicer than me and Ravi. (laughs) So I think that's that's a given. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) There's never a doubt about that, David. I guess just one thing, I at least in my view, Joe, when you were saying you take small steps, I think what you do is large steps. Every day, these are amazingly large steps. And just for the listeners to just close their eyes for a second and think about their loved ones. And if somebody doesn't have the ability to speak, and then through your phenomenal work that you do at Lethika Roy Foundation, enabling that to happen, I cannot think of a larger leap than that. And so I just wanted to say that's what gives us, I guess, the joy and keeps us going is your great work. And then Ravi, I guess, what gives you hope as we look forward? Because you've seen lots of different things that have occurred both in the country as well as globally. Where do you see sort of the sector in development and communities, I guess, going as we look to the future? in trusting the people. I'll give you a very recent example that we've had some very rabid 
speakers incite violence in the state. There's been a response of fear and silence all around. And at one stage, we decided back in May, we decided to organize a, a discussion where people uh, could come and talk about how do we counter this culture of violence, growing culture of violence. We thought it'll be nice if we can get 70 or 80 people in and we'll go and look for a hall of about 100 capacity so that the hall looks full. Well, more than 150 people showed up and they listened very patiently and there was good discussion and it resulted in the formation of something called the Shanti Dal, a volunteer core, which was ready to step into a situation of conflict, social conflict, and help pacify the, the conflict. So they do want to change things. And therefore, it's important that then the uh, Rajmohan has said this, that the way forward lies in working with small community groups. And therefore, it's important to invest that trust and faith in the ordinary people. No, no, I thank you, Ravi, and I completely agree. I feel for the most part, all of us want safety and security for ourselves and our families and a greater life than what we've had for our children. And I think there is, especially, I think, post-COVID, I'm seeing, I guess, just this greater sense of solidarity by meeting people face to face, by having some of these conversations and not being so black and white about it, but realizing that that middle ground is where we all want to reside and have resided actually for many years. I just wanted to thank, first of all, both of you all for all of the fantastic work you have done, continue to do, and you have been definitely a mentor for my journey as it relates to Dasra and all my experiences in the social sector and for so many others, I'm sure, that have met you along the way or that are listening to this podcast. And I appreciate you taking out the time to speak to me and so many others through this platform. Well, thank you for thank the opportunity, you, Deval. Deval. It was really fun. Well, I hope it wasn't too painful. No, no not no, at no, all. No. Not at all. <laughs> Just a lot of the use of the word impact, which <laughs> I do not approve of. It means collision. <laughs> it means bam. It means crash, thud. You know, that's not what we do with children for sure. Maybe you guys do that. <laughs> I don't know, but we don't. <laughs> no, no, I agree. And I apologize for using that term as well. <laughs> you can't judge impact in three years, you need to look at it at 10 years, you need to look at what we're doing with communities. And it's not as straightforward as the law makes it seem. But when you use that word, David, you expect immediate results. If you use influence, you recognize this is a slower process. This doesn't happen in three years or one year or whatever your funding period is. It happens over time and generations, really. So a word like influence is a better one. And you could change your acronym can stay DSI, still be workable. No, no, no. I appreciate that. Thank you. See, I learned I will use influence going forward. <laughs> Number one. Anytime. Find us at dasra.org forward slash NCE for more details. Subscribe to No Cost Extension on your favorite podcast platform.